Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. Thanks for joining us again today. And if this is your first time, we're so happy that you're checking us out. Yeah, I hope you'll enjoy it. But if it is your first time, you may want to go back to my last case to figure out why I'm covering this case today. Oh, are they connected? They have something in common. You know how you're always marveling about killer couples and how the fates align to bring two dirtbags together? Yes, it always intrigues me. Yes, well this time you'll be wishing that these two dirtbags did meet. Really? Who would want to meet Dorothea? Well, it's not that he would want to meet her. I just think that they could have taken care of each other oh. had they met. <laughs> Okay, I've actually never thought of this before, but what would happen if one serial killer was trying to kill another serial killer? That was just the scenario I was thinking of. That'd be a whole like Freddy versus Jason kind of thing. (laughs) The last case I did was on Dorothea Puente, the landlady who murdered her tenants. And this week, we're going to cover the reverse. So a tenant who murders their landlords? Yep. Today, we'll be talking about a dirtbag that created international terror killing landladies. How did you come up with this one? I came across him while I was researching Dorothea and knew that I just had to cover Earl Nelson. Oh, it's kismet. Mm-hmm. Today's case will have you wondering why these two dirtbags couldn't have met and taken care of each other. Yeah, no kidding. That would have done society a huge favor. Could you imagine if he had found his way to her boarding house? I almost wish we could have seen what would have happened. Clash of the Titans. Exactly. Because of the hype that surrounded this case in the 1920s, there's a lot of material out there. And this was both a blessing and a curse while doing research. And I know everyone will be shocked to learn that not every headline gets it completely accurate. That is so true. I think people don't realize how many times the newspapers do get it wrong. Especially in the fine details, right? And probably especially in the 20s, too. The difficulty in researching this case was not the finding of information, but in the verifying of that information. This case was so sensationalized and took place so long ago that many of the often reported facts were hard to verify. But I'll point them out as we go along. A multitude of books have been written about this serial killer, and all of them have contradicting facts in them. So it got a little confusing at times. No kidding. That sounds like a researching nightmare, to be honest. I found it awesome. (laughs) I love research. (laughs) Okay, I love research, but that's where you and I would differ because I would just be like, I ain't got time for this. Tell me when the birth date was. (laughs) I just found it so interesting to go back and dig through all of the old records and the census data and to find out the information that I was seeking. It's such a thrill for me. Okay, that I will agree with. I recently just found a census report and it's all handwritten with one of the murders that I have coming up. And it's so eerie. It's like it makes them real and it's just extra creepy. I love it. Mm-hmm. That part I agree with. It's the different information coming all different ways that it can be so frustrating. Well, and the information that was differing was coming from what I would consider reputable sources. So it was very interesting to find the contradictory facts. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. Earl Nelson is often cited as the first sexual serial killer of the 21st century, and he went by many names in the media. 
Oh. Was Dirtbag one of them? No. Should have been. We'll be the first ones to call him a Dirtbag. Because he totally was. He was known by the Strangler, the Dark Strangler, the Gorilla Strangler, and each one of these titles gave the man behind these gruesome crimes characteristics that grew with media attention. So he was known for having these huge hands and feet and having this abnormal strength. And so they started calling him the Gorilla Strangler. But with each new news article, the size of his hands and his feet just kept growing. Oh, I see. So it's kind of like that childhood game when you play telephone and you whisper it into one ear and then they whisper it into the next person's ear. And then by the time you get back to it, it's totally different than what you started with. Yes. And there's an incident in this case that I'm going to tell you about later that is exactly like that. But these news articles made the man seem more like beast than human. And I have a hard time disagreeing with them. So we'll see what you think after this case, too. Well, what I was expecting is for one of them to say the gorilla strangler because he was super hairy. No, he was <laughs> <laughs> That's where my mind went. <laughs> no, he just had these huge hands and feet. He had a short stature and was barrel chested and he had this dark complexion. So people related him to looking like a gorilla. I can just picture the silhouette like in the night what that would look like. Oh, how creepy would that be? Yeah. He didn't do a lot of his murdering at night though. Oh, that's interesting. Broad daylight. Oh, that's brazen. Mm-hmm. I was going to say ballsy, but you know how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> he was brazen. Earl Nelson was born Earl Leonard Farrell in San Francisco, California on May 12th, 1887. His parents, James C. Farrell and Franny Nelson, both suffered from syphilis and would not live long after Earl's birth. And here I couldn't find the source record that cited syphilis as the cause of death. And given that it usually kills slowly, even when left untreated, I'm inclined to think that their deaths had compounding factors. Oh, likely. Because syphilis, it can take anywhere from like 1 to 30 years to show up and to be fatal. But the average is 15. So you think there was other causes for his parents to pass away? Yeah, I think they must have had poor health already. Okay. But either way, their diagnosis of syphilis would play a prominent role in Earl's life. When Earl was not even 10 months old, his mother, only 20 at the time, passed away on March 9th, 1888, and was quickly followed by his father less than a year later. That is really tragic. Mm-hmm. So he never knew his parents. The orphaned Earl passed into the care of his maternal grandparents, Lars and Jenny Nelson. They had had five children of their own, and all but two were grown adults when they took in the young Earl. Earl's uncle Willis and his aunt Lillian, known as Lily, were more like siblings to him than an aunt and uncle. Amidst their teasing, they really did grow fond of their little nephew and developed a sense of responsibility over him. The family were devout Pentecostals, and Jenny, who was a force to be reckoned with, was sure to raise her grandson with a very healthy fear of God and the consequences of sin, especially sexual sin, using his parents as examples of what happens to those who don't follow God's plan. <gasps> no. Mm -hmm. So she taught this young boy that his parents died because of their sexual sins? Mm -hmm. His grandmother <gasps> would frequently remind Earl that his parents' deaths were a direct result of their sinful behavior. That's unbelievable, honestly. It's what she believed. I just can't even imagine telling your grandson that this is why his parents died. Basically putting the blame on them. Like it's their own fault that they died. Oh, she totally believed that. And she didn't want Earl to follow into their same patterns. And so she was warning him off of any sexual behavior. So he died a virgin? No. Oh dear. Yeah. So from an early age, Earl displayed some very unusual characteristics and behaviors. He had severe tantrums and refused to be taught how to eat with his hands. Instead, Earl preferred to slurp his food straight from his plate, 
like an animal. Like a gorilla. Uh-huh. This behavior is interesting to note because if he would have been exposed to syphilis in utero, it would have likely led to him having congenital syphilis, a condition that has very dire effects on the baby. Only about 50% of them actually live, and those that do live suffer from long-term health complications, including intellectual disabilities and processing. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That sounds likely in his case then, which then would support the fact that his mom did actually have syphilis. Yeah, I don't doubt that she had syphilis. I'm just not sure it was her primary cause of death. Yeah, that makes sense. There is no mention of his mother's illness ever being treated or that Earl was ever actually diagnosed with congenital syphilis. So I'm not really sure if it is true or not, but I thought it was interesting to note given what his behaviors were like even as a child. Mm-hmm. Throughout Earl's childhood, there is no documented history of abuse or neglect. Other than a very religious upbringing, it seems that he was lovingly cared for by his grandparents and his aunts and uncles. Well, that's good. So where is this going to go all wrong? Oh, it does go very, very wrong. In spite of a loving home, his behavioral issues continued, and at the age of only seven, he was expelled from school. At seven? In only grade two. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. His unpredictable, violent outbursts in his class were just too much to handle. I was going to say that has to be some major reasoning for that age. Especially in a time when they would have just beat them into submission. That's true. That was the time of the strap. Mm -hmm. He was caught stealing more than once and seemed completely out of control. And this was around the same time that his grandfather Lars died, leaving him in the sole care of his grandmother, who tried even harder to scare him out of his bizarre behaviors by using his fear of God. This sounds like a recipe for disaster. It is a disaster. From an early age, Earl would talk to people that no one else could see and quoted scripture at the top of his lungs, always focusing on scriptures that mentioned the beast in Revelations. What? Okay, I'm getting total horror movie vibes, like a demon child. We have all seen movies like this, where there's a little boy or girl who starts out this way. Mm -hmm. And it is usually a demon. When the Great San Francisco Earthquake happened in 1906, and the 6 meter, or 20 feet, displacement of the ground along the San Andreas Fault resulted in devastating fires, Earl would loudly proclaim that it was because the city was facing the wrath of God because of their sin. Can you imagine this little half pint standing up on his little soapbox? It's because you're sinners! That's what he totally believed. Wow. But -hmm. his grandma had taught him that. Oh, absolutely. He would carry around a worn Bible with him wherever he went, and walked around with his head lifted to the sky, speaking to heaven all the time. That is bizarre behavior. Where most little boys at that age are just wanting to play with sticks. (laughs) Or I don't know what little boys play with. (laughs) I'm thinking 1800s, what did little boys play with? (laughs) Sticks and rocks. I was going to say sticks and cans, right? Kick the can. (laughs) I think there were jacks then, right? When were jacks invented? I'm going to find out. One second. The game known as jacks or a variation of the modern game, has been played for more than 2,000 years. In texts left behind by a Greek philosopher, there is mention of the game being played around the time of the Trojan War, so roughly 1190 BC. So he could have totally been playing with jacks instead of speaking up to the heaven. But instead he chose to warn all of his neighbors about their sins and carry around a worn Bible. Wow. Earl had a healthy fear of anything that would be considered unholy. Which is very ironic, given what he goes on to do. But many would speculate about how this fear of God that his grandmother instilled in him would contribute to his future crimes. I'm super intrigued. I don't think I know this case. It's an oldie, but it's a goodie. 
After recovering from a near-death experience with diphtheria at the age of nine, Earl's grandmother passed away. No. Mm -hmm. So after he was sick and he had finally recovered, his grandma actually passed away. The steady force that his life revolved around was gone. Oh my goodness. So by age nine, he's now lost two sets of parents, essentially. Uh Uh-huh. That is really tragic. In an already disruptive little boy's life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. His care passed to the hands of his uncle Willis. He had still been living at home when Earl had come to live with his grandparents, and so his Uncle Willis was familiar with the boy's oddities and was not above teasing him because of it, but it seemed to be, like, good-natured. Yeah, right. Good-natured from Willis's point of view, Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Earl would live with his uncle until at least the age of 12 amongst the other lodgers that Willis and his wife took in to earn money. Oh, no. Is one of these people going to, like, assault him? There was no record of that. Okay, because that's where my mind went. But I think it would be plausible that because he was such an odd behaved little boy, that even the renters would make fun of him, especially if their host was already making fun of him. Yeah, I could see that. And we know what bullying does. Mm -hmm. So in 1908, while assumed to be showing off to some other children, Earl raced his bicycle that his uncle had given him alongside a streetcar and was hit and dragged for over 50 feet. (gasps) Oh, no. He sustained a very serious injury to his temple that caused him to go in and out of consciousness for over six days. Okay. This is just going to keep going downhill, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because we already have this lack of bonding and a stable parental figure for his life. And now we're adding in a head injury. Not to mention that if he had congenital syphilis, he already would have had brain deficiencies. Oh, my goodness. His injury was described in some reports to be an actual hole in his temple, and other reports described it to be more of like a depressed skull fracture. Either way, it was a significant head injury that his doctors didn't believe that he would survive. Yeah, that sounds gnarly. Mm -hmm. But he did pull through, and 16 days after the incident was said to be back to normal. What? Mm -hmm. A skull fracture and he's good in two weeks? Yep, he just started going about his normal activities. Even recovering from a significant concussion takes sometimes up to a year. Oh, yeah, mine did. Uh Uh-huh. I still get headaches from mine. Yeah. But normal for Earl was a relative term, who was already a little bit of an odd duck. His moods continued to be erratic and unpredictable. There were times when he was deeply depressed with oppressive thoughts and morbid dispositions. At times, he would spend hours just staring off into space. Other times, he was almost manic, walking around the house on his overly large hands and lifting heavy objects like chairs with his teeth to show off to guests. Come on. He walked with his hands? Uh Uh-huh. Like a gorilla? Yeah. (laughs) Melissa, no. He would walk with his hands on the floor and then pick up items with his teeth. Yes. And it was these reports, later by his family, that led to people starting to call him the Gorilla Strangler. Yeah, I'm totally, that's the name we're going to call the episode. Uh Because that's what it needs to be. (laughs) Yep. But this definitely didn't help him being viewed as more of an animal than a human. Yeah, especially in that time. People Mm -hmm. were not very accepting of oddities. Or anything divergent, right? Right. And if they were, they would go into the asylums or they would take off with Lobster Boy and be in the carnivals. Yep. After this accident, though, there is evidence that Earl's physical health did take a turn for the worse from his unusual bizarre behavior. He suffered from severe temporal headaches, hallucinations, and blackouts where he would lose large chunks of time. And this would continue throughout his life. The headaches and dizziness would get progressively worse and at times make it even difficult for him to be able to walk. 
Years later, he would suffer a second head trauma from falling off a ladder because of the worsening dizziness caused by his first head injury. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. So he suffers from multiple head traumas. This kid can just not catch a break. He has not had an easy life. It feels like the world is stacked against him, to be honest. But he did have loving people around him. At some point, he was transferred into his Aunt Lillian's care. She had children of her own by that time and did her best to care for this kind of wild little boy. He continued with his bizarre habits of eating food without his hands after covering it all in olive oil. And it was some sort of ritual that he had created. And I just thought maybe he was anointing his food. Blessing it, maybe? He had to cover all of his food in olive oil? Yes, and then he would slurp it off the plate. Ooh, Oh, that is so gross. That, like, is activating my gag reflex <laughs> a little bit. In oil? Mm-hmm. Did he have a hard time, like, swallowing? Like, did he have sensory issues? Like, I'm wondering what the reasoning behind that is. I think from the way people describe him, I think he might have had some sensory issues. Yeah. Yeah. Because even just maybe it was more of a texture thing when he was eating. Yeah. But, I mean, people in Turkey drink a teaspoon of olive oil every day. Yeah, but that's different than dousing all your food and slurping it up in oil. It's true. It would have been so gross. Yeah. Just like her mother, Lillian would struggle to keep Earl from wandering and looking like a vagabond. He frequently had the habit of returning home in soiled clothes that were tattered, torn, and ill-fitting even though she had made sure he left the house in proper fitting clean ones. He would somehow find a way to switch out his clothes somewhere along his aimless wanderings throughout the day. That is bizarre. So he just preferred to be in older, ripped up clothing. They would continually put him in fresh clothing, clean clothing, and both Lillian and her mom, Earl's grandmother, had difficulty keeping him in his own clothing. I shouldn't be laughing, but this is what my brain just did. I'm thinking of like, because I'm still on the gorilla, but I'm thinking of like Harry and the Henderson, you know, put him in a suit that's uncomfortable as opposed to like Tarzan in his loincloth. He just wanted to. (laughs) Maybe that's what it was for Earl. I don't know. (laughs) It was more comfortable. (laughs) Yeah. He didn't want to be all in that stuffy outfit, I guess. Well, especially when you're walking on your hands. That would have made it more difficult. Yeah. How can you do that with like a belt and suspenders and whatever else they wore in that time? Yeah. Just bizarre. Yeah. He had a lot of bizarre behaviors. Or is it like a self-esteem thing? Like, I don't deserve this. Maybe. Did he feel sorry for other kids who didn't have nice things and would trade his clothes? There's no record of that. More often than not, he would steal the clothing. So he was like a little good clothing fairy. He would take your tattered stuff and leave you some new pants. That's right. And this behavior would continue right into adulthood. Okay, you're stuck on syphilis. I'm stuck on this. (laughs) I just want to know what was up with doing that. It's just what he did. Interesting. Yeah. Lillian would grow increasingly uncomfortable with him around her children, especially when she caught him watching her daughter while she changed and saying dirty things to her. What? Mm-hmm. So how old would he have been about now? He's like 13, 14 right. at this time. Okay. Yeah. So just coming into puberty and recognizing and having some sexual urges. Oh my goodness. Yep. And sexual urges that he's been taught to totally smother. And he's kind of at a loss this whole time. He's been taught that anything sexual is evil. Yeah, even the thought. Even the thought. And now he's coming into puberty and he doesn't know what to do with those feelings. Oh, man, this is going to cause some huge inner conflict for him. And he's been raised pretty much like an only child. So now all of a sudden he's with real live girls around his age to look at. Well, not his age. They're younger than him. Oh, gross. Mm -hmm. 
Lillian would later say that she started to encourage him to leave the house and would even provide him with funds to stay elsewhere. While she didn't know exactly where he did stay, it's presumable that he stayed in short-term boarding houses or in homes with rooms for rent. While Lillian felt responsible for Earl's care because he had been raised as her brother, she was also nervous to have him around her family. And so she was in conflict of how do I care for Earl, who was raised as her brother, but also wanting to protect her own children from him. Well, and honestly, her own children should have been her priority. Like, I think she did the right thing because they're going to start with like these dirty, nasty things that they're going to say to her, but that would soon have escalated. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think if he would have stayed in her house, he would have escalated on her children. Yeah, which is so disturbing. But I also feel sad for Earl because he has no stability at this time and he's not that old to be taking care of himself. No. And so from this time on, he's pretty much just kind of out on his own. Officially, he would leave the school system in grade 10 and would never earn his diploma. By this time, Earl had grown into a stout, muscular man with his extremely large hands and feet with a ferocious appetite. Even though he ate in a very odd way, he had a huge appetite. Yeah, because with the oil, it just slides right down and slides right out. (laughs) It's like a cleansing diet. (laughs) Because of his Spanish ancestry on his father's side, he sported a deep olive complexion and was frequently the object of teasing at school and unfortunately at home from the other children. Oh, so from the time that his grandma passed away, he probably hasn't felt like he's fit in anywhere. No, his grandmother was like the center of his whole world. Yeah. And that's why he so strongly resembled her attitudes and behaviors. And that's why he was preaching about sin to everybody, because that's what she preached to him. Right. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. And he lost her at a relatively young age, like nine. You don't know who you are yet. No, not at all. You're still a baby at nine. Mm hmm. Around the age of 15, he began to frequent the brothels and bars of San Francisco Barbary Coast and had become a compulsive masturbator. Oh, no. A trait that's actually quite common among serial killers. That is true, actually. Mm -hmm. He had developed almost a dual personality. He was a preacher of sin and then a partaker of sin. Was there ever any reports of him having any kind of multiple personality disorders or anything like that? Well, remember, this is like 1914. Oh. The study of psychology is just in its infancy now. Right. And so he does go through some psychology investments that we'll get to, but there's never anything specific about a borderline personality disorder or multi-personality disorder. Okay. Yeah. But you can see how he would now be getting this inner conflict. Because he's partaking in this sin, but then he would also, when he's done, probably have this extreme guilt and shame and hatred even towards that part of himself. Absolutely. And what do you do with inner conflict? And so he had this dual personality. Yeah. Or Mm -hmm. people will numb it. Did he have any kind of substance abuses? Oh, yeah. He was a very large alcoholic. Hmm. Not surprising with what's going on here now. Earl had difficulty holding down a job because of his frequent headaches coupled with his propensity to just kind of wander off midway through a job. But he had enough cash flow to pay Lillian some room and board to help support their household. And he even had enough left over to support his drinking habits. Hmm. He began to disappear for days at a time, spending most of his money he earned on alcohol. And this just worsened his hallucinations and he would frequently be seen speaking to invisible people. On the occasions when he would return to Lillian's house, he frequently looked like he had just been in fights and often returned in clothes that were not his own. So he's still doing this now. Mm. That's wild. See, I really want to know what's he doing with the clothes. (laughs) He continues throughout his life with it. 
It's just so bizarre. Lillian would later find out that Earl was funding his binges not only with the odd jobs that he told her about, but with petty theft. She would learn about this in 1915 when he was caught stealing food and money from what he thought was an abandoned cabin. Unfortunately for Earl, it wasn't, and the owner came home and caught him red-handed. Oops. In July, he was sentenced to two years for robbery, and because he was now 18 and legally an adult, he was sent to San Quentin State Penitentiary. San Quentin? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a bad one. And I'm assuming it's been bad since way back then. Oh, it doesn't sound like it was a pleasant place, and definitely not an easy place for a young man like Earl, who was already super odd. For sure. We've talked about that prison before on our podcast. Yeah. There, he would receive no treatment for any of his disorders. He was paroled on September 6, 1916, just a little over a year later. That's crazy. Apparently, the court officials thought that he was reformed enough to enter society. But over the next few years, he would be incarcerated two more times and enlist in different branches of the military. And this is where the timeline got very confusing for me. Well, and it's so surprising to me that you can be in and out of prison, but then join the military. They just weren't screening back then? Well, it was more the fact that he kept on changing his name. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. But that, again, is another trait of serial killers where they seek out military or police officer work or a job that has some type of authority. Mm -hmm. They kind of become a little obsessed with it. Yeah. I think we'll find out that for Earl, the military life was just not for him. Okay. Just a little over six months after being paroled, he was caught and charged with petty larceny. He was returned to jail for another six months and was set free again. On his release, he took his thieving to Los Angeles, where he was promptly caught again and would spend another five months incarcerated for burglary and desertion. While incarcerated this time, he didn't bother to wait for them to release him. He just escaped from the Los Angeles County Jail himself. Oh my goodness. But it's like Earl... You're not very good at stealing. You keep getting caught. Get a job. Move on to something else. Yeah. So during this time that he was in and out of prison, he also enlisted in the army after being released from prison, I think the second time. He hoped to be sent overseas, but he wasn't really cut out for the military and he deserted after only six weeks. While standing guard one night, he just up and left. Wow. So there's just no follow through. None at all. And that's what he would do at jobs, too, is that he would just wander off in the middle of the day. And this is what he did when he was standing guard. So is it laziness or just lack of attention, getting bored? I think it's lack of attention. Okay. And he just gets distracted with other things. Huh. Squirrel, there's something shiny over there. Let me do that next. Mm -hmm. After deserting the army, he tried to make a living in Salt Lake City, Utah, but he didn't fit in there either. So once again, he tried out the military. This time he joined the Navy and enlisted under his birth name, Farrell. He was assigned to be a cook, but in just over a month, he had deserted again. He didn't like the chores they gave him to do. I am really still trying to figure this guy out, to be honest. I don't think there is any figuring this guy out. Yeah, his patterns of behavior is quite bizarre. Mm -hmm. It seems that the Army and the Navy never pursued Earl for his desertion. Likely because they had seen his odd behavior and knew that he wouldn't do well in the military. They were picking up on the fact that he had some undiagnosed mental health disorders. Desertion charges were only actually ever brought against him when he was facing other charges. Okay. I agree with that, though, that there's some kind of mental disorder going on that they're just not aware of. They haven't named it yet. Mm -hmm. Earl enlisted for a final time as a medical corpsman. This time didn't work out any better. 
and after refusing to leave his cot and continuing to read the Bible aloud and prophesizing about the apocalypse, he was discharged from the Navy and committed to the Napa State Mental Hospital on December 4, 1918, for assessment and treatment within a month of enlisting. It was recognized by senior officers that there was something not quite right with Earl, so they arranged for an assessment to be completed. Well, at least someone is now taking a look at him. Yeah, and this is the first time throughout all of his bizarre behavior that actually somebody's like, uh, no, you need to go get checked out. Yeah. Napa State Medical Hospital was the first state hospital in California. It opened its doors in 1875 because the Stockton Asylum was overcrowded, and it was made specifically for criminals that were incompetent to stand trial, those not guilty by reason of insanity, and offenders with mental health disorders. So it seemed like the perfect place to send Earl. Yeah. During his intake, Earl revealed aspects of the bizarre lifestyle that he had been living. He claimed that he had been drinking and masturbating since the age of 13, but now did neither of those things anymore. In fact, he proudly claimed that he hadn't drank for seven months prior to being admitted. Him being able to claim this kind of just says to me that he was aware of his dual nature and tried to reconcile the two. Almost like he was proud that he had been able to tame the beast that made him drink. Yeah, it's really sounding that way. When asked about the blood tests that he had received on a mission that showed both gonorrhea and syphilis, he said that both of these diseases had been contracted before his 16th birthday. Whoa. But that was back then when he was going to brothels at the age of 15. Mm-hmm. Earl underwent evaluation and spoke freely about the hallucinations and paranoid delusions that he had. He would see faces, hear music, and voices that would tell him to kill himself. It was noted in his file that despite his observed bizarre behavior and preoccupation with religion, he did not appear to be violent, homicidal, or destructive. How wrong they would turn out to be. Oh no. Over a course of less than a year, Earl would escape from the institution on three different occasions and earned the nickname Houdini from the hospital employees. After his third attempt, the hospital just kind of gave up on going after him. The closing note in his chart on May 17, 1919, simply stated that he was, quote, improved. Oh, that can mean a lot of things. Yeah, a good pat on the back for all the work the doctors had done with him. Yeah, just improved. Like, what does that even mean? Exactly. Improvement can be super tiny or it can be huge. Yeah. I'm guessing it was super tiny improvement. Or maybe non-existent at all. Just had to write something good in the notes. That's right. After escaping from the institution, Earl tried to hold down a job as a janitor at St. Mary's Hospital. Amazingly, he was present at this job long enough to attract the attention of Mary Martin, a woman that worked at the hospital. Remember when we were talking about the broken telephone game? Yeah. There's a lot of differing sources on what age Mary was when she met Earl. So some say that she was 58, some say she was over 60 when they met. But when I looked up their marriage certificate, it shows that she was actually only 36 when they got married. That's a big difference. Mm -hmm. So there was one original news source article that I found from that time that erroneously reported that she was 36 years Earl Sr., Oh, instead of 36 years old. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if this is how this kind of thought process started, where she was 58 and then it gradually led to being like, oh, she's almost 60 and now she is 60 and now Mm. she's over 60, just as the years passed and people kind of told the story over and over and over again. Yeah, that's probably likely. It was interesting to find the trail. Like a telephone game kind Mm -hmm. of situation going on with the news. Right. Or... Maybe she actually lied on her marriage certificate. Earl certainly had lied on their marriage certificate. 
He had presented himself as Evan Lewis Fuller and was 27 at the time. Hmm. So did she know that that wasn't his name? No, she doesn't find out until later. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So when they met, like when he was working there, he was already going by that name? Yeah. Okay. When he got the job at the hospital, he had changed his name and his age. Interesting. He proposed and they were married on August 5th, 1919. Perhaps the idea of Mary being so much older than Earl was promoted because of the idea that Earl might have secretly been looking for a woman like his grandmother. Oh. And I think that's why it just kind of kept building. Yeah, it fits the scenario. Yeah. And it seems that Mary was like his grandmother. While only 14 years his senior, she was still a fair bit older than him and during that time would have been considered an old spinster. She was also as devout to God as his grandmother was. Oh, this is totally giving me grandma vibes for him then. Mm -hmm. Because at 22, 36 would seem way older than it is. Yeah. She was the motherly type and just wanted to take care of him. Once living with Earl, Mary learned just how strange her new husband was. Aside from his animalistic ways of eating, he refused to bathe or wear clean clothing. Oh, he's not even showering now? No, he would dip his toe in a glass of water to say that that's his bath. On top of all that, he had very disturbing sexual habits and desires. These were not something that Mary wanted to take part in. Remember, she's this proper, upstanding citizen, and she just didn't want any part of that. And just imagine the funk. He's not even showering. Who would want a part of that? No. When she refused him, he became threatening towards her. And within six months, she actually left him. Wow, which is not common for that time. No, you have to appreciate that that's how bad the situation was. That in 1919, she left her husband. Yeah, most women at that time felt trapped. Like they were almost forced to just put up with it. Mm -hmm. Well, good for her for being so courageous. Yeah, hold off on that for a minute. She comes back. Oh, She has a strong sense of duty to him. Yeah. It is speculated by some, though, that this is what spurred on Earl's first sexual attack. On May 19, 1921, posing as a plumber, he gained entry into the home of 12-year-old Mary Summers. Twelve? Mm-hmm. Once he had gotten her into the basement alone, he violently attacked her, throwing her to the floor, and started to choke her. This brave little girl fought back with everything she had and screamed loudly enough that she alerted her older brother, who was upstairs. He came heroically to her rescue, and Earl fled the house. (gasps) Thank goodness for her brother. Mm -hmm. And that she was such a little fighter. And this just seems so weird. He's attracted to and marries an older woman and then is now targeting a 12-year-old? I think it was just somebody that he saw that interested him. The age group that he eventually settles on is quite a bit older. Yeah. But this was just his first opportunity. Okay. Earl was taken into custody just two hours later while just casually riding along on a trolley. Oh. Like he didn't even bother to like hide. He was officially charged with the crime on May 25th. His behavior in jail was shocking enough that it convinced the judge that he would need to be assessed before standing trial for his assault charges. Wow. On his first night in prison, he pulled out all of his eyebrows and yelled continuously at the wall at the faces he saw there. I cannot even imagine plucking out all your eyebrows. Ouch. No, one hair at a time. Yeah. This is how Mary would learn of her husband's true identity. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. What his real name was and his past criminal and institutional history. I wonder if she was dumbfounded or had more of a sense of like, oh, this makes sense now kind of thing. I would probably assume the latter. 
Mm-hmm. And I would feel a little more justified, and now I can for sure leave him. Well, to her credit or her detriment, Mary decided to stand by her husband and honor her vow to take care of him in sickness and health. Oh, I can see that too, actually. Mm-hmm. She would visit him and later would be one of the two witnesses that would testify on his behalf in his future murder trials. She testifies for him? She testifies to the fact that he is actually insane. Okay. But in his defense. That's right. Mm -hmm. It's for his defense. At the end of May, he was sent back to the detention hospital for assessment and was then admitted there for the entirety of his sentence on June 13th, 1921. Hmm. So they took him to Napa for an assessment and they're like, no, you can just stay there. Yeah, which honestly, it feels like he needs to be there. Mm -hmm. During his second stay at Napa, he was diagnosed as a constitutional psychopath with outbreaks of psychosis and was said to suffer from nomadic dementia. Because of this, and perhaps because they had read his previous charts about his escape attempts from the hospital, Earl was never allowed to roam the grounds without restraints or direct supervision. And that was a good thing, because within the first two weeks, he attempted to flee twice. Oh, wow. But both attempts failed. But he had done that his whole life, from job to job, and in and out of the military, just all over the place. Mm -hmm. But while at the hospital this time, he did receive treatment for a syphilis and was said to have been making some improvements in the first year of his stay. He was more cooperative and participated in conversations and daily tasks. He started bathing. That's good. Gradually, he earned the trust of the staff and was given more privileges. He was no longer supervised at all times and was allowed out on the grounds without restraints. His religious fever remained, though, and his progress wasn't lasting. After approximately 18 months, his charts began to show that Earl was refusing to take his medication and was becoming increasingly restless. Unfortunately, despite the warning signs, the staff continued to allow Earl to wander unsupervised and without restraints. Even though they know that he's becoming more restless. Mm -hmm. So it does not seem like a logical time to be giving him more freedoms. Well, it's not that they were giving him more freedoms. It was just that they weren't restricting those freedoms anymore. Right. Like, really, they should have been imposing more restrictions on him. If he wasn't taking his meds, then sorry, you have to be supervised all the time now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they didn't do that. On November 2nd, 1923, he fled to his Aunt Lillian's house in the middle of the night. Of this encounter, Lillian would tell a newspaper that he showed up at her house and, quote, he had his face right up against the glass with a horrible, crazy hat on. And I let out a terrible scream because he looked so awfully insane. His eyes were just black, glaring at me. And the children rushed up to me. And of course, I opened the door because he was my own flesh and kin. And I loved him. I would have peed my pants, honestly, to see that at your window. Mm -hmm. But just because she opened the door to him didn't mean that she wasn't terrified of him. She gave him a change of clothes and then encouraged him to leave. As soon as he left, she called the police. He was taken back into custody two days later in San Francisco. Wow. But she just had this conflict over, do I help him? Do I care for him? But knew that he was scary and dangerous. Yeah. And who knows until you're put in that situation what exactly you'll do. Mm -hmm. But her solution was to get him away from her house as fast as possible. And so she gave him clothes and money and just sent him away Mm -hmm. and then called the police. And he hasn't escalated to be like a murderer or rapist yet. So you can see why she would maybe let him in. Mm -hmm. He would return to the hospital for another 18 months. And on June 13th, 1925, the charges for the assault were dropped by a superior court judge. I'm assuming that it was because they felt that he would just be found not responsible anyway. So they just dropped the assault charges. What? Earl was subsequently released from Napa 
with only a single note having been recorded in his medical charts for the previous 16 months. One note for 16 months of stay and care? Uh-huh. It simply stated that he was discharged as improved. Again, another job well done by medical staff. Yeah, I think not. <laughs> that is so terrible. So he really wasn't getting the care that he needed. Or at least nobody was documenting it if he was. Yeah, nobody was paying that much of attention to Earl. So he's fallen through the cracks. And I wonder, like, if they had paid attention, could that have set him on a better path? Hard to say. Well, I think that his first year during his second term in Napa showed that, yeah, if he had received continuous treatment, he would have been a different person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After leaving the hospital, he returned to live with and terrorize Mary. But within a few weeks, his nomadic tendencies began to express themselves again, and he began to leave their home for long periods of time. During these periods, Mary was unaware of his activities and didn't really pay too much attention to them because she was just so relieved that he was out of the house. Poor Mary. Mm -hmm. Earl began to wander the northwest part of the U.S. and left to his own devices and unchecked by any outside forces, Earl became an absolutely insatiable beast. Oh no. Are you ready? Buckle yep. up, Buttercup. <laughs> <laughs> I'm buckling. I'm ready. I know this is going to be bad. It's so bad. On February 20th, 1926, Earl entered 2037 Pierce Street in San Francisco, the home of 55-year-old Clara Newman. She had a sign in her window advertising the room that she had for rent, and at 1.30 in the afternoon, led Earl into the attic of her home to show it to him. He appeared to be a nice God-fearing man, and definitely not one that she was afraid to enter a room alone with. Clara's nephew, Merton, was home at the time and recalled that he saw Earl a short time later as he was exiting the house and was told by Earl that he would be back in an hour to rent the room. Merton didn't think anything of this until an hour later when he found his aunt's lifeless body with a cord wrapped tightly around her neck. Oh no. Despite Merton's detailed description of Earl being a presentable 30-something, 5'7 man wearing an army shirt with a dark complexion, the police were unable to locate him. When Clara's body was examined by the coroner, it was determined that she had been strangled and then raped after her death, a detail too disturbing to be made public at the time. Yeah, I'll never understand that. There's lots of theories about him not being able to face people when they're alive. Huh. And so the only power that he could take was when they were dead. With his very first victim, Earl established his M.O., one that he would carry out with almost every single one of his victims. Whenever he met a landlady that he planned to kill, he made sure to dress in nice clothing, comb his hair back neatly, and most importantly, carry around a torn and tattered Bible wherever he went, making himself look like the textbook definition of a good religious boy. Which tells me that he's intelligent enough to know how to manipulate this situation. Uh-huh. He would then discuss religious philosophies and mix in some scripture to charm the women and whoever else was present. Then, once he had the woman alone, he dropped the facade and strangled them to death. Then he would rape their lifeless bodies, and if the chance presented itself, rob them of their valuables to be pawned and traded later. What a dirtbag. Mm-hmm. That is terrible. And these poor women are vulnerable in the fact that they do have a room for rent. And he's figured that out, that they're going to let me into their home. Yeah, because he had been exposed to so many of those types of rooms living with his uncle. They had rented rooms, and so he was familiar with the process. Mm -hmm. When he had lived with his Aunt Lillian, she had encouraged him to stay at 
other people's houses in their rooms that they had for rent. And so he was very familiar with the process and what was expected. Right. What was a good potential renter? Who were they going to let stay with them? He wasn't dumb. No, just dangerous. Mm -hmm. On May 2nd, just a little over a week later, no cooling off time, typical of the first time killer, Earl entered the apartments of Deer Park in San Jose. 65-year-old Laura Beale welcomed Earl to see the room that she and her husband had for rent. For her hospitality, Earl strangled her with her own silk belt from her dress before defiling her. No. Mm -hmm. He strangled rooming house lady Lillian St. Mary with his bare hands on June 10th while back in San Francisco. She was 63 at the time and had put up a fight. Earl had to subdue her by putting the full weight of his body on her chest. By doing so, he broke nine of her ribs. (gasps) Bizarrely, Earl placed Lillian's hat next to her head, an overcoat under her feet, almost staging her body after he committed these awful crimes. Lillian was presumed to have just been heading out when she took the time to show the stranger Earl the room she had for rent. Oh no. With three murders in quick succession, and all being landladies of similar ages, police quickly connected the dots and assumed that they were dealing with one deranged person. They assumed that it had to be somebody from the Bay Area asylums. But their research into patient files would not be done fast enough. On June 24th, William Franny, a boarder at 53-year-old Ole Russell's home, was awoken by rhythmic loud banging from the room next to his. A shift worker, grumpy that he had been woken up, went to investigate the noise. He peeked through the keyhole of the room next to his and had to take an extended second look to confirm that a man in a gray suit was standing over a woman that looked like Ollie. The man's pants were around his ankles and he was thrusting away. Oh, he caught him in the act of pleasuring himself. Yeah, but at this time, he's just like this peeping Tom looking through the keyhole and he thinks that Ollie is just committing adultery. He thinks she's into it, but she's actually dead. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So he sneaks back to his room and when the stranger had finished his business, replaced his hat and left the boarding house, William went back to investigate again through the keyhole. This time he saw Ollie still lying on the bed in the same position. No. And what looked like blood on the bedding. Suspicious now of foul play, he went and found George, Ollie's husband, and reported what he had seen. Oh. The two entered the unrented bedroom and found Ollie dead. Her face was severely beaten and was already discolored. A cord was found wrapped around her neck, wound so tightly that it had actually cut into the skin and blood had splattered on the bed around her where she lay and was also smeared on the door casing. Oh, and that poor neighbor afterwards to know that you could have caught him in the act and to find out that, oh, he was raping her dead body. Yeah, it would have just been so disgusting. That is an image that will be burned in his brain forever. Mm hmm. Well, William and two other men that were staying at the boarding house were actually taken into custody for the crime and later released. Oh, police didn't really believe his story. And for almost every one of Earl's crimes, others were falsely accused and taken into custody. That is wild. Probably too, because he's a bit of a drifter. So he's not putting down roots anywhere to kind of be caught. Not at all. After Ollie's death, police revealed to the media for the first time that each of the four previous deaths had involved necrophilia. This created a frenzy in the media and landladies started to become very wary of opening their doors to strangers. But their wariness didn't stop the murders. Earl had a way of convincing landladies to trust him and let him into their homes. Mary Nesbitt would be Earl's next victim. On August 16th, while she was making dinner for her husband prior to his arrival home, 
she made the fateful mistake of being kind to Earl, who showed up at her Oakland home. When her husband arrived home and couldn't find her, he just assumed that she had stepped out to grab some missing ingredients. But when he found her purse still in her bedroom, he became frantic. Oh, yeah. He was aware of all the news stories and about this evil animal that was lurking along the California coastline. He went straight to their second story apartment that he and his wife had for rent. There, his fears were realized. He found his wife's battered and ravaged body. Her blood splattered every surface of the bathroom floor where he found her. Her broken teeth were strewn about from the beating that she took. She had been strangled with the torn dish towel, likely the one that she had over her shoulder when Earl interrupted her preparing dinner. Oh no. It sounds like his violence is really escalating too. She was beat so savagely. The media frenzy grew, and so must have Earl's awareness of it, because he chose now to leave the state and venture into Oregon, the next state north of California. On October 19th, Beta Withers was found by her 15-year-old son in the attic of her boarding house. She had been strangled and raped. This murder marked an evolution in Earl's bestial murders. Earl had stuffed Beta's body in a trunk, and it's speculated by some that he was fighting the shame at this time, And this was his effort to hide his monstrous actions. Mm, Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Criminologists that have studied Earl's crimes feel that Earl had, quote, previously been unafraid of having his crimes discovered and had taken little care with hiding his victims. However, killers who have some shame or regret over their crimes will often make token efforts to cover or block the faces of their victims. Mm -hmm. Sometimes this effort will be simply to turn the head away from the killer's method of exit or place a towel over the face to hide it. Other times, more care will be taken to hide the shameful results. For sure, that absolutely happens. Which I'm curious to see, is this going to make him escalate, or is he going to retract a little bit and take a breather? No, not at all. With most of his future murders, he does make some attempt to hide the victims or cover them, although the hiding places that Earl picks are really not great hiding places. So hiding in plain sight. Yeah, Dr. Robert Keppel, in his book Signature Killers, surmised, quote, it's likely that Nelson's personation at the crime scenes indicated his victims represented someone he knew. Perhaps they represented his overbearing grandmother or possibly the wife who rejected him. This is believed because of the similarities between most of Earl's victims. They were all close in age to his grandmother. Mark Gribben also proposed that, quote, his necrophilia could have arisen out of a desire to hurt his dead grandmother with his victims playing her part, quote. Interesting. It makes sense. It does, because he would have made to be feeling so shameful, right? He was acting out all of those sins that she had warned him about. And if you're feeling shameful or guilty, right, you strike out over the person or the thing that is making you feel guilt or shame. Perceived or not. That's right. To him, that's his reality. Yeah. Theories aside... If feeling shameful was the reason for the change in the MO, it wasn't strong enough to stop him from murdering people. The very next day, 59-year-old Virginia Grant was killed in the exact same way. She was found tucked behind her furnace. One day after that, Mabel Fluke was also found in a similar way in her attic. His urges just seemed unstoppable. Earl would find his way back to California. On November 18th, he strangled Anna Edmonds with a rag and raped her in her San Francisco home. The next evening, around 6 p.m., Earl attacked a pregnant woman, (gasps) Mrs. Murray, at 114 Grove Ave in Burlingame, California. She was younger and stronger than his other victims, 
and was able to fight him off and yell loudly enough to attract the attention of her neighbors who came to her aid. Earl, ever the Houdini though, fled and escaped capture once again. But he did leave a witness behind that was able to give a very accurate description of him. And this is probably why he left the area so quickly after this. That makes sense. I'm so glad she survived. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like he is just going into these women's homes and grabbing whatever is handy to strangle them with. Like he's not even bringing in his own kind of kill kit. No, he just uses whatever opportune thing that he can find. He's like, oh, they'll have something for me to use to strangle them with. But with those huge hands, I'm shocked he's not strangling more of them with his hands. Some he does. Yeah. If he can't find anything, then he resorts to his hands. Huh. But he couldn't have been overly put off knowing that someone could identify him because it's believed that he might have been responsible for the death of Florence Monks on November 23rd, just a few days later. Florence was in the process of selling her home when she was found dead in her basement. While Florence was beaten and choked, it's believed that she actually died from a heart attack during the vicious attack. Oh, like I can't even imagine the terror that these Mm -hmm. women are going through. Yeah. This method of crime diverged a little from the way that Earl had operated with his other crimes. So some disagree that it was actually Earl that was able to steal over $10,000 in jewelry from the wealthy widow that she had hidden in her underclothing. The coroner also denied any signs of sexual assault. Oh, so no necrophilia afterwards. No. So this one kind of diverged. Interesting that she carried her money in her undergarments. Yeah, she had it like sewn in. Oh, okay. Over her right shoulder. So it wasn't that she was even like naive to that kind of thing. Like she was trying to be preemptive against crime. Yeah. He just had this way of gaining women's trust. Well, he's got a Bible in his hand for one. Mm -hmm. He's all dressed up respectfully and he's got a good reason for being there. He wants to potentially rent their room. That's what he wants them to believe. Yeah. Some argued that his MO might have changed, that once she had died of a heart attack, the rest of his ritual no longer held any appeal for him because he had been denied squeezing the life out of her. Or that once Florence had died, while in the process of undressing her, he was distracted by all the jewels that he found in her underclothing. Oh. Mm -hmm. But in most reports on Earl's crimes, it is included. Yeah, I can see how you would include it and how you wouldn't. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about it? I tend to lean a little bit more towards the latter, especially when you consider that Earl was now consistently adding robbery to his vile crimes. And he'd started out with robbery. Mm -hmm. He had to be funding his travel some way and paying his rent for all these rooms that he was going into. And there's some evidence later on that he was actually in possession of Florence's jewelry. Okay, so it seems like he probably was good for this case. Yeah, I think it's pretty plausible. But there is a large school of thought to think that, no, his that crime differed too much from his MO. Right, but having her jewels in his possession is pretty damning evidence. Yeah, some argue that how do you really know that they were her jewels? But sometimes it's the combination of those different jewels and the number of them, that with, type of thing. Yeah, with him in the area. He's a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. But Blanche Meyer's death on November 29th was solidly attributed to Earl and included the element of robbery as well. She rented a room in a Portland home to a man that fit Earl's description for $4. She believed his story that he was a lumberjack looking for work. Witnesses say that she had raised some concern about Earl saying, I don't like his looks very much. Her body was found garroted underneath the bed that she rented him. Oh my goodness. So this really then makes me feel like that last one was him if he's now including robbery in this one. Mm -hmm. From her, he stole her diamond engagement ring and $8.50 from her purse. 
Most eerily, though, Edna Gaylord and her tenant, Sophie Yates, had enjoyed the company of a very pleasant, stocky, dark-complexioned man, Adrian Harris, at Edna's Portland boarding house. He rented a room for a week and was kind enough to provide the two ladies with all of the fixings for a Thanksgiving dinner. When he left the boarding home two days early, he was thoughtful enough to leave both women some expensive-looking jewelry as gifts. Oh, stuff that he had stolen from other victims, I'm sure. Yeah. When the description of the Dark Strangler was advertised after Blanche's murder, Edna promptly went to the police and told them about her kind tenant. Police believed that the jewelry that had been left behind was very similar to the ones that had been reported stolen from Florence. Dirty dirt bag. Yeah. It wasn't a for sure this was her jewelry, but it, police believe that yeah. there's a good likelihood. What are the chances? Mm-hmm. Elmira Berard's murder on December 26 in Council Bluffs is also attributed to Earl because she had a room to rent and was raped after her death. Oh. She was last seen with a shabbily dressed man in his 30s who introduced himself as Mr. Williams. This is so crazy. As disgusting as necrophilia is, I am glad that he chose to rape them after they were murdered. If he was going to be doing both anyways, because it actually spares them that extra trauma of being raped before being killed. I don't know if that's an appropriate thing to say, but... I can definitely understand your sentiments with that, though. At least there was a little bit less terror that they had to face in their final moments. Mm -hmm. Still so degrading and disgusting. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to wrap my brain around it. The thing that really is shocking is that there is no cooling off period for this guy. There's only one time that he really takes some breaks beyond what he would need to travel to the next town. So I'm wondering, is this classified as a serial killing or a ginormous spree killing? It takes place over 16 months, though. That would be a huge spree killing. Yeah, no, then this would be a serial killer. Yeah. He averaged about 24 days in between killings. Oh, okay. But some of them are like day after day after day. And even 24 days is not a lot. No. A lot of serial killers will start where they'll murder their first victim, and then they might even be held over for a whole year until they would murder their second victim. And then it would progressively get shorter and shorter. Yeah, with him, he was just right into it all the time right from the Mm get-go just nothing about him is standard no not at all so right after Elmira Berard's murder the next day 23 year old Bonnie Pace would suffer like all the others at Earl's hands in Kansas City Missouri Bonnie's disabled son was in the home at the time and heard banging and had feared that his mother had fallen because he didn't hear her after that. Oh, no. But because he was unable to get up out of his bed, he just had to wait for his dad to come home. That's so terrible. Mm-hmm. That poor kid. Earl had left the boy unharmed. And I think perhaps because he didn't even realize that the boy was at home. Probably not. The next little boy that was home with his mother was not as lucky. Jermaine Harpin and her eight-month-old son, Robert, were also choked to death, the same as Bonnie. Robert with his own diaper. What? Mm -hmm. Mother and son were found by her husband. Both Bonnie and Jermaine were renting out rooms in their house. This is blowing my mind. Why murder an eight-month-old baby? The baby wouldn't even be able to give a description of you. Nope, he was just there. And this is the one and only time that Earl has a slight cooling-off phase. After killing the infant... His next known murder wouldn't be until April 17th, 1927. Oh, I'm sure it shook him, Mm -hmm. especially if he's still combating his religious views. Only a monster can murder a baby like that. Yeah. But still, only four months later, he starts up again. Yeah. That's his longest break. What a disgusting pig. 
honestly. And I'm wondering, has he veered a little bit off of his victim type? Because these two women are obviously a little bit younger than his other victims. The ages of his victims do span quite a bit. The majority of them are in that kind of 50 to 60 range. Right. But if he's on such a rampage, if he just sees a room for rent or an opportunity, he probably can't even control himself to pass it up. There are some criminologists that believe that sign of room for rent gave him absolute thrill. Oh, yeah. And set him into almost a frenzy where he wasn't even then considering was this person young enough to fight him off or was there other people in the house? Because as we get into more of his crimes, you'll find that sometimes there's actually people in the house while he's committing these crimes. So he's getting more and more sloppy with what he's doing, which is showing that he is getting out of control, that he's no longer even been able to pick and choose and be methodical about it. Or rein in that beast, right? Yeah. At all. He is terrifying. Mm -hmm. By April 1927, he had made his way across the U.S. He saw a for sale sign in the window of 53-year-old Mary McConnell's home in Philadelphia and used it as a ruse to enter the home that she and her husband had been trying to sell for over a year. She was found hidden under the bed, strangled with a cloth. The next day, a man fitting Earl's description tried to pawn some of Mary's jewelry that had been stolen by her killer. He's just so terrible. I don't even know what to say about him at this point because even just thinking of her, if they've been trying to sell their house for a year, even if she had some kind of off feeling about him, she would have been so desperate to sell the house that she wouldn't have allowed herself to not let him come into her home. Mm -hmm. It's just such a breach of their safety. Well, we feel safe in our homes, right? Yeah. Earl's rampage in the East continued. On May 30th, he murdered and raped Jenny Randolph in Buffalo, New York. Earl had presented himself as Charles Harrison, a painter from New York City. Jenny had been beaten and strangled with a towel and then stuffed under a bed. Next, Earl moved on to Detroit, where he murdered 59-year-old Fannie Mae at her boarding house along with tenant 29-year-old Maureen Oswald Torthy on June 1st. The home was ransacked by Earl as he looked for money and things to pawn. The authorities were alerted to something suspicious by a neighbor who had noticed that the lights had been left on for three days straight. The women were found in separate rooms and were believed to have been attacked separately. They weren't found until June 5th. <gasps> oh my goodness. He just keeps escalating. So he went after one of them and then found another woman in the house. So he attacked her too. I just can't even imagine what kind of horror transpired for those women. Mm -hmm. His last victim in the U.S. was in Chicago on June 2nd. We're to his last victim now? No, no, no. His last victim in the U.S. Oh, in he travels out of the U.S.? Yes. Just when I think he can't get worse. And the thing with him going from state to state, city to city, and now leaving the country, it's going to make him even harder to catch. Absolutely. Everybody's looking for him. The media attention is all on him. But because he goes to the next town, the next state, it's more difficult to follow his actual trail. Right. And we've talked about this in older cases before. They don't have the technology to just put his name or information in a database and have everything else come up. No. When we actually get into his capture, we'll go through some of the difficulties that they had even trying to get information from the states. Wow. That's incredible. So Mary Sitzma was found dead in her home with an electrical cord around her neck. Her skull was crushed. Earl left behind blood evidence at this scene. Is this the first time he's crushed a skull like that? Mm -hmm. He is out of control. Police and Earl felt like they were finally closing in on him. So he made the decision to head north to Canada. No, we don't want you, Earl. <laughs> That's what I say, too. <laughs> 
An unsuspecting motorist, W.E. Chandler of Winnipeg, picked up Earl in Michigan and dropped him off in Noyes, Minnesota, near the Emerson border crossing. Earl walked across the largest undefended border in the world. Oh my goodness! I can't imagine that there wasn't a wanted poster or something with his description on it by now. What was Canada thinking? Just letting him in. And he just walked through the border. Yep. Even that is so suspicious. Yeah. Thankfully, though, Canada would eventually make up for that mistake. But not before Earl had killed two more people. Oh. So you mean it was the amazing Canadian RCMPs that solved this murder? Absolutely. Just north of Emerson, another unsuspecting, kind Canadian couple gave Earl a ride to Winnipeg. He arrived on June 9, 1927. Once in Winnipeg, Earl stopped by Jacob Garber's secondhand store at 218 Main Street and traded in men's clothing that he had taken from Mary Sitzma's house for a new outfit. Then he rented a room at Catherine Hill's house at 133 Smith Street around 10 p.m. Earl had told Catherine that his name was Mr. Woodcoats, and he paid her a dollar for the room and promised to pay her the rest of the monthly fee on Friday. Catherine didn't doubt the nice Christian man's word. So he actually rents a room this time. Mm Mm-hmm. And Woodcoats, was that a common name? I'm like, where did you come up with that one? Because you can pick literally any name you want. And you're coming up with Woodcoats? He just saw what was there, right? Oh, I see some wood and oh, I got a coat. Woodcoats, that's my name. He walked in. Yeah, probably. There was probably a fire going and coats hung by the door. There are so many aliases that he goes by. Who knows how he comes up with some of these names? Yeah. And it is funny that some of them actually have similarities. Like often he uses the name Harris and then Harrison. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, it'd be hard to start keeping them straight. He just comes up with a new one every time. He doesn't have to keep them straight. Yeah, I guess so. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. It would seem, though, that Earl was setting her up to be his next victim. But this wasn't the case. Like Edna and Sophie, she would be spared from his vicious nature. Unfortunately, others would not be. At some point on June 9th, Earl came across 14-year-old Lola Gowan, who was out selling paper flowers to supplement her family's income. Her father was recovering from pneumonia and the family was having financial difficulties. This sweet girl was doing her best to help out by going door-to-door selling flowers that she had made. It's unknown whether Earl forced her into his room at the Hill residence or if he lured her there telling her that he would buy a flower. She only needed to come to his room to collect the money. Oh, that just gave me Jerry Brudos vibes. The shoe fetish killer. That's exactly how he got one of his victims as she was selling encyclopedias door-to-door. Mm-hmm. Come on in. I'll buy something from you. Yeah, come in my room where my money is. Yeah. Oh. She was never heard from again. The next day on June 10th, Earl ventured out and around 11 a.m. found a room for rent sign in the window of William and Emily Patterson's home at 100 Riverton Ave in St. Boniface. It was assumed that Earl had offered to do some of the home repairs in exchange for room and board. Several neighbors saw Earl repairing a screen door with a hammer, but no one thought anything of this stranger. The Pattersons, who were new immigrants to Canada, rented out some of their rooms in their house to help pay their mortgage. So seeing a stranger around their home was not unusual. And really, no one in the community was suspicious of anything. The crazed strangler was running wild in the U.S., not Canada. Yeah, no kidding. And this is just adding to his opportunity to get away with things because his victims that he's choosing, like you just said, it's not unusual for someone to see a stranger there. No, So even for that nosy neighbor, they're probably not going to report it because they're used to seeing people coming and going. Yep. And I'm really curious, was there any insight as to why there was those few women that he chose not to kill? 
Well, he did need some places to stay. And so where he actually stayed the night, he didn't kill those women. Huh. So he would be inside basically two boarding rooms at a time, like in the same day, because he would kill one and then go actually lodge in one. Yeah. This is a practice that he did over and over. Like he would stay in some landlady's homes and the places that he actually stayed the night in, he wouldn't kill them. He would go out and find other ladies' homes and kill them. He would pick and choose. And he's funding all of this by the money he's stealing. Exactly. It's just a perfect ruse for him. You can see why he's getting away with this. Mm -hmm. And why we ask for references now when you rent. Yeah. And I'm thinking, especially after our case from last week, too, with Lisa Montgomery coming in to look at puppies for sale. If anyone needs to come to your house because you have something for sale or for rent, don't be alone. That was the advice of the police at the time. They would tell people and they would spread the word in a particular area. And then he would move to a new area where Mm -hmm. they hadn't been as warned and that their guards were down a little bit more. And that's what Earl was finding in Canada is that this strangler that was going around wild in the States wasn't Canada's problem. He wasn't there. A lot of Canada probably hadn't even heard about him. No, not in those days. We didn't have the mainstream media that we have now. That's right. News travels a lot faster now than it did then. Yeah. So not suspicious of this helpful young man, Emily turned her back on him at some point and her trust received a hammer to the head. Oh. Emily put up a significant fight, though, and tore pieces of Earl's hair from his head before he strangled her with his bare hands. When he had finished with her dead body, he shoved her under a bed along with his newly purchased clothes. He then helped himself to her husband's whipcord suit and $70 in a suitcase that was in the bedroom where he shoved her body. And this $70 was their life savings that they were saving up to start a store together. Oh, that's so sad. Mm -hmm. He's so vile. He just takes whatever he wants. Yeah. And it's showing me too that he is taking his time going through their things because to find $70 inside a suitcase, you're really searching through stuff. Or perhaps he just opened the suitcase and was like, oh, I'm going to put my new clothes in here because he always takes clothes from their victims' houses. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Once he was composed, Earl walked back to Main Street in Winnipeg and traded in the whipcord suit at Sam Walden's secondhand store and then went for a haircut. While in the barber chair, though, the barber noticed dried blood in Earl's hair. When he brought it to the attention of his customer, Earl became really agitated and told him not to touch it. Oh, right, because she had ripped out some of his hair. Mm -hmm. What a dummy. See, he's so smart in some aspects, but then like, oh, I'll go get my hair cut. Yeah, nobody's going to notice that I have a whole bunch of bloody spots in my scalp. Mind you, with that much adrenaline that would have been going through his body, he might not have even felt that. And if it was at the back of his head, he might not have even seen it either. Yeah, that's true. Sporting his new clothes and haircut, though, he found his way to Regina, Saskatchewan, hitching rides with unsuspecting strangers. It's estimated that over a thousand people would have given Earl rides during his career as a serial killer. Oh, I can't even imagine realizing later. It would just be so disturbing to know that you had a serial killer in your vehicle and to always wonder why it wasn't you. Like very grateful for it, but just knowing what could have happened would be so eerie. Right. Or do you think that there would be a guilt knowing that you dropped him off at his next victim's house? Yeah, could. I mean, it would not be their faults at all, but no. a lot of people do have survivor's guilt. Yeah. If that could be considered survivor's guilt, I'm not sure, but yeah, I don't know. In Regina, he rented a room under the name Harry Harcourt and stayed there until the morning of June 13th when he read about Emily and Lola being discovered and a good description of him printed in the local newspapers. Mm. 
Emily had been found by her husband. When he returned home from work, she was nowhere to be found. He learned that she had not picked up their children from their play date at the neighbor's house, and by the time he was tucking his children into bed and telling them that their mother would return soon, he was desperate to find his missing wife. In his desperation, he kneeled beside his son's bed and prayed for help to find his wife. When he stood after praying, his pant leg lifted up the bedspread of his son's bed. That's when he spotted his wife's favorite sweater under the bed. To his shock and horror, when he reached under the bed, he found his wife's battered and defiled body. That just gave me goosebumps. So he prayed to find her, and then as soon as he stood up, he found her. As horrific as it is, his prayer was totally answered. Mm -hmm. And he had just laid his child down on top of the bed that his wife was under. Yep. Oh my goodness. How do you come back from something like that? I don't know. He had been in the house the whole day looking for her. And never thought to look under his son's bed. No, why would you? No. Lola had been found by another boarder at Catherine's house. After Emily was found, one of the detectives recognized that this was a very similar MO to that strangler that had been circulating in the U.S. Mm. And they started almost immediately investigating all the boarding houses in the area. Good for them. Mm -hmm. So they actually went to Catherine's house inquiring if she had had any strange boarders at the time. To her, Mr. Woodcoats was not strange in any way, though. And she told police that. She said, yeah, I've had a boarder here. He left, but he doesn't seem to match the description of what you're telling me about. She didn't see any red flags. No. But following a nagging suspicion, she did go to check on his room anyway after the police had left. When she opened the door, there was a terrible smell in the room. But otherwise, it looked perfectly fine. Like the room didn't even look like he had used it at all. She decided to report this because this was a little bit suspicious. And on her way to the precinct, another boarder at her house wandered past the open door that she had left to air the room out and saw what they believed to be a mannequin under the bed. Sadly, this was the strangled and tortured body of Lola. The 14-year-old girl selling the flowers. Mm -hmm. She had been raped multiple times after her death. Oh my goodness. And she's a child. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, his behavior is so all over the place. Yeah. And multiple times. So he just kept her there under his own bed to use whenever he felt like. Yeah. There were reports that the bed had been slept in, but from Catherine's statement to the police, she said the room had looked like it was unused. Huh. So there are some differing reports on that account of whether he actually stayed in the bed with Lola's body underneath of it. And also, like, where did he rape her then? On the floor? In the bed? Yeah, I don't know. But he had stayed there a full night with her body. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. So the detective, George Smith of the Winnipeg police, was the one making the connections between Emily and then Lola's bodies and the infamous strangler that had terrorized the U.S. He organized every single available detective to help with the case and offered $1,500 as a reward for his capture. Whoa. How much is that today? It would be worth over $25,000. That is a remarkable amount of money for that time, especially. But if you can help catch this guy that's now murdered at least 22 people, well worth it. Oh, for sure. With every newspaper warning residents that the Strangler was now in Canada, the hysteria spread like crazy. On fleeing from Rowe's house, Earl bought new clothes at a department store and sold his old clothes at a secondhand store in Regina. The clerk at the Royal Secondhand Store noticed that the clothing was the same as the description given of the Strangler's clothing, 
and alerted the police. Oh my goodness, these Canadians are on it. Yeah, they are totally paying attention to detail. With the police setting up roadblocks everywhere and hot on his trail, Earl tried to make his way back to the border by hitching a ride with Isidore Silverman, a scrap metal dealer. Mr. Silverman, because he was collecting scrap metal, was staying off the main roads and traveling across the backcountry roads visiting farms that were out of the way. Because of this, Earl was able to miss all the roadblocks that had been set up. Oh, no. Yeah, so he was just crisscrossing all the back roads and not on any of the main roads because he was going to all these farms. Oh, man. From Bosavan, where Mr. Silverman dropped Earl off, he caught several other short rides and made his way to the small town of Wakopa, where Earl entered Leslie Morgan's general store shortly before 6 p.m. on June 16th. Immediately, Leslie was suspicious and went to alert the police. The storekeeper's wife entertained Earl, all the while suspicious that the man she was feeding was the strangler. He left his wife (laughs) with Earl? He left his wife with Earl? Yeah. To go tell the police Mm -hmm. that this might be the killer who targets women? Yeah. Leslie. Maybe not the smartest choice, but it actually works out for them. When the sole officer on duty, Constable W.A. Gray, reached the store, he took Earl into custody. Finally. Mm -hmm. But Earl claimed to be Virgil Wilson and was nothing like what Gray thought a crazed gorilla strangler would be. But not trusting his first impression, he locked Earl in a cell with two Yale locks and removed his shoes for good measure. Gray then left Earl alone to make the call to the chief detective, George Smith. While he was making the call, Earl removed a rusty nail from his cot and picked both locks. Get out. He's Houdini. Earl fled to the local train station and hid beside a grain elevator awaiting the next train. Please don't tell me he goes on to murder more women now. No, the Mounties are good at their jobs. There are several different stories about how Earl was eventually caught that night. Several different stories say that the train he tried to escape on was full of police officers that had been dispatched to help in the search and that he had unwillingly jumped right into their hands when he jumped on the train. That seems a little Mm far-fetched. Another story tells how railway passengers spotted him hiding under the platform and yelled and pointed him out to a nearby constable who apprehended him just as a train load of police officers were arriving from Winnipeg. That seems more believable to me. Mm -hmm. And a third recounting I found from an essay at the Winnipeg Police Museum told of how Constable Renton had spotted Earl after 12 hours of searching for him when Earl left his hiding place next to a grain elevator. He had pursued him on foot and captured him in a bush nearby. Then he had the help of several local citizens who took him to the Killarney train station where he turned him over to the train that was carrying Winnipeg detectives. That one seems plausible as well. Mm -hmm. With the case being as old as it is, some amalgamation of each of the stories is probably the truth. You're probably right with that one. Yeah. (laughs) The truth is somewhere in the middle. (laughs) I just don't believe the first one. No. (laughs) I do believe that there probably was a train full of Winnipeg officers on their way and had arrived. Yeah. And that seems plausible because it shows up in all the recounts, right? Yeah. And that local citizens actually helped with the rest. And that he was hiding nearby, Mm -hmm. probably waiting for his opportunity to jump on a train. Yeah, that was definitely his goal was Mm -hmm. to get on a train that was going to take him back to the States. And he is so sly. He must be feeling pretty invincible 
at this point in time because over 16 months he's killed 22 women Mm -hmm. and been able to break out of prison his whole life he's been able to like break out of being incarcerated and he just probably feels unstoppable Mm -hmm. earl once captured maintained that his name was still virgil wilson he was taken by train to the Rupert Police Station in Winnipeg amid rioting crowds. Once he arrived at the station, he was booked, photographed, and fingerprinted. The photograph was distributed to police stations throughout Canada and the United States. Several witnesses confirmed that this Virgil Wilson was the same man they had encountered during the U.S. murders. So even the time that it would take to actually distribute that photograph. Remember, it's going snail mail. There's no fax machines. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Mm -hmm. A knife amongst his belongings was scarred from an electrical burn. This scarring was predicted by one of the detectives from one of the other cases because the victim had been strangled with a cut electrical cord that was burned at one end from the electrical discharge. Oh, so it was still plugged in when he cut the cord off. Mm -hmm. San Francisco police match Virgil's fingerprints to those of Earl Nelson. They also match fingerprints and teeth marks of those found at crime scenes. Teeth marks. Yeah, he bit his victims. Ugh. It was confirmed that the Royal Mounted Police had got their man. Earl Nelson was the gorilla strangler and was now in custody. At first, Earl admitted to the crimes, making claims that he only kills ladies on Saturday nights. What? Yeah. Oh, then that's fine, Earl, as long as you don't do it on the Sabbath. Yeah. What, Saturday night is like the sinner night and then Sunday is the... Repentio sinners. (laughs) Oh my goodness. What a fool. Yeah. Later, he recanted his confession and insisted that he was completely innocent of all allegations against him, saying that, quote, murder just isn't possible for a man of my high Christian ideals. Oh, please. You're disgusting, Earl. You're a vile demon. In Canada, he was charged with only the murder of Emily Patterson, but was indicted for murders in San Francisco, Portland, Detroit, Philadelphia, and Buffalo. During his incarceration, he resented the way the guards treated him. He said that he had high ideals, good character, and was not guilty of any crimes. He complained about the death cell that he was placed in while awaiting his trial. The nerve. Mm -hmm. But apparently this death cell was a particularly hard cell to get out of. It was reserved for just specific criminals. It was the first time that a prisoner who had yet to be convicted was put in the death cell. Yeah, but he had just escaped the other jail with a rusty nail. Mm -hmm. He needed to be in the death cell. Exactly. Officials feared not only that he might escape, but that a mob might lynch him before the trial could even take place. Well, that wouldn't have necessarily been a bad thing. Except that it's on all of their conscience. Yeah. The trial eventually started on November 1st, 1927, before Justice A.K. Dysart and a 12-man jury. Attorney Stitt didn't attempt to argue Earl's innocence. Instead, He asked the court for clemency because Earl was insane. Out of over 60 witnesses, only two witnesses, his aunt and his former wife, were called by the defense to support Earl's insanity plea. At the end of the trial, on November 4th, the 12-man jury took 48 minutes to find Earl Leonard Nelson guilty of murder and sentenced him to hang. The jury took no pity on Earl, sane or not. There was no appeal. Ooh, this is in Canada. Mm -hmm. Earl Nelson was handed a swift death sentence on Friday the 13th, January 1928. After walking 13 steps to the gallows, Earl became the 13th person to hang at the Vaughn Street goal. Whoa. And on Friday the 13th to boot. Uh Uh-huh. With all those 13s? Yeah. I thought that was so interesting. And was there 1,300 people in the square watching? (laughs) 
I didn't read that. <laughs> Maybe that's just one of those reports that's kind of gained fame over time. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Who is actually counting his steps? Maybe that's how many steps it takes to get there. Yeah. Before the trap was sprung, he told spectators, quote, I am innocent. I stand innocent before God and man. I forgive those who have wronged me and ask forgiveness for those I have injured. God have mercy. Just like Dorothea, he denied everything until the bitter end. God have mercy indeed, because I would not want to be you meeting my maker. No. Despite being only convicted of one murder, there is irrefutable evidence that proves he was responsible for killing at least 22 women. And many believe there are several other deaths that were not officially linked to him. Among those were Ola McCoy, Mary Murray, and Lena Weiner. All had rooms for rent in Philadelphia in 1925 and were murdered and raped after Earl had been released from Napa State Hospital. All of their murders took place when Mary said that Earl was away from home. Some have put the number of Earl's victims as high as 29. Oh, I would totally believe it. Mm -hmm. And it just floors me, just the audacity for someone like him in his last words to cry for mercy when he did not care or extend any even iota of mercy towards his victims. Nobody. Oh. And that is the disturbing case of the dark and twisted, insanely vile dirtbag, the gorilla strangler, Earl Leonard Nelson. That was a wild ride. Isn't that insane? And all I have to say is, thank goodness we have more connection between police departments and better forensics and warning systems nowadays. Absolutely. And I'm grateful that my buttercup was buckled during this case. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely hadn't heard that case. And that was pretty wild. I just really love covering these older cases. And hopefully our listeners enjoyed it too. And I will be back with another case for you next time. Until then, see ya. Bye. business is that the right word yeah sure i don't know <laughs> i don't know like, i forget to <laughs> i totally got lost in my own talking <laughs> and interestingly enough syphilis rates are rising really? all around the world mm -hmm. all right listeners if any of you have got the sif you can message us and melissa can give you some information <laughs> why did i call it the <laughs> who you calling old <laughs> I feel old today. And I'm older than you, so maybe we are oldies, but we're goodies. Oh, no, wait, that's a hydraulic jack. <laughs> I just read the first thing that came up. Why it's important to read all of the headline. <laughs> but normal for Earl was a relative term. Oh, my elbow just, my oh, wrist okay. creaked. I don't know if you'll hear that. It was right here, too. Sorry. Going back to that statement about us being oldies but goodies. That's right. We got to retake that because my bones are creaking. <laughs> Incarcerated for burglary. Burglary? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. He is suffering from... <laughs> from being interrupted by a truck. <laughs> Chocolate break. I got one more. Some shame or regret. 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 I really regret doing that. <laughs> However, killers who have some shame or regret. Oh my goodness. 
<laughs> Happy get over doing this. Oh, that's not what I was supposed to say, was it? No. What am I supposed to say? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.